like to uh, share some thoughts this time on 1 Corinthians 3. And uh, start off that in verse 1. He says, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So he says that you are not spiritual. And yet later on in Corinthians, it's quite clear that they had the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. And yet they were not spiritual. And I think we tend to, uh, I think, uh, assume more often than we need to that Holy Spirit tends to refer to miraculous gifts. I personally don't think that they played the role which we might imagine they did. Of course they were around, but the emphasis of Paul and of Jesus is on being spiritually minded. And he says here that these people were not spiritual. They were still babes in Christ. They had not really been spiritually reborn. Now we know from John 3 that the new birth involves being born of water and of spirit. And all too often I think we assume that because we're baptized or because somebody has been baptized, that is it, that is an end in itself. But in fact the whole idea of the life in Christ is to be spiritually minded, is to be spiritually reborn. Just remember that John the Baptist, John did no miracle, but he was filled with the spirit from his birth. And even the, uh, the comforter, which maybe in its primary context may refer to the miraculous gifts, uh, was to be unseen by the world and to be within the believers. That's John 14:17 is quite clear about that. And so God is working through his spirit, and yes, that includes the Bible, but not solely. God is, is working and moving in us, if we will let him, to bring us to new people. And these Corinthians had been baptized and accepted the theory of the gospel, but had not become spiritual people. And straight away we see, or we begin to see, something rather uncomfortably similar to what we probably at times feel about ourselves. And of course he says in verse 3, whilst there's divisions amongst you, you clearly are not spiritually mature people. And you may say, yeah, it's the other bloke's fault that there's a division, not mine. But the point is that whilst we uphold in our hearts any spirit of party lines or division or whatever, we are still spiritually immature. And it's a paradox that often those who consider themselves to be mature are actually the very ones who lead off divisions. And it's quite clear that that is unspiritual behavior. We made the point when we talked about First Corinthians 1 and 2 that if we were Paul sort of facing off against the Corinthians we'd have probably started off <clears throat> chapter 1 verse 1 pretty well guys you're getting drunk on the wine at the breaking of bread uh, there's all kind of sexual immorality going on amongst you people look guys stop don't you see that is wrong but instead he starts off with his number one kind of hit being on their divisiveness and the fact that they were divided and I think we need to give that its, uh, its true weight, because, as I say, even though we may say, ah, but it's not my fault uh, that there's divisions, well, the point is that whilst we in our hearts have a divided mentality, that is the same, and it's no good endlessly blaming division on somebody else, because that is what every member, I suspect, of the body of Christ will say. And the fact that he holds them all accountable for division and cites that as an example of their immaturity, I think uh, rather proves that point, that it's not enough to say, yeah, well, it was, it was the other bloke's fault or someone else's fault. So then, 
he goes on uh, really to talk about how he has laid the foundation and how he has preached Christ and he says verse, uh, well he, he says that he's a, a builder and he's laid the foundation there in Corinth and other people have come and built on that foundation and he says verse 11 that there can only be one foundation and that is Jesus Christ so straight away you see that the gospel is Christ centered the message that was preached was Jesus and I have said when we started particularly the Gospel of Mark, I think in almost every one of those 15 talks that I did on Mark, I think I made this point that Mark's Gospel is almost a transcript of the Gospel that was preached. It was, as it starts off by saying, Mark 1 verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Gospel is what you've got in the Gospel records. It is Jesus. It's not a set of theology, a set of sort of abstract ideas it's about a person and that is the foundation that he had laid and he says that others have come and, uh, and built on that and he says verse uh, 12 that on that foundation you can build wood, hay and stubble 13, but every man's work will be made manifest for the day and he surely means the day of judgment shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And then he, he says that that fire might actually, in some cases, burn up what you built. But, verse 15, if any man's work shall be burnt up, he suffers loss, but he himself shall be saved, and then this difficult phrase, yet so as by fire. I, for some reason, remember my mother saying to me many years ago that for her, that phrase was one of the hardest phrases in, in all of Paul's writing. Yet so as by fire. And uh, I suppose that's why I, uh, I took the challenge and thought about it a lot. And uh, I understand it to mean that your work will be, could be burnt up, but you yourself could be saved, shall be saved, yet so as by fire, although you yourself will have to pass through that fire. Now, what fire is going on at the Day of Judgment? Well, fire and Judgment Day are connected, and f the fire of judgment is the fire of condemnation. So, there we will stand, and we will feel condemned. That's quite normal. That's quite imaginable, that we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ with the weight and burden of our sins and memories of, of our lives and of course uh, our, our memories will uh, I guess uh, be inspired by the whole scene, the whole purpose of judgment I think is to elicit from us uh, an awareness of ourselves and so there we are facing condemnation and we see others being condemned, we see the work perhaps which we have done for others being burnt up in that, perhaps we see those for whom we laboured in this life being condemned, burnt up in this metaphor of, uh, of fire. And we suffer loss. And yet we ourselves, as it were, are dragged through that fire and saved. That we face that condemnation and yet we will be saved out of it. Now this is uh, a pretty profound insight into the Day of Judgment, that we will stand there in one sense and feel condemned. I mean, how could you feel anything other? And can you just imagine for a moment you standing before the Day of Judgment, before the Lord Jesus, and him saying, look, you know, 
left-hand side, and you're saying, yes, sure, you know, that, that is where I should be. And the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, just imagine, for a moment, it's a fantasy, I hope, and then the call, hey, Duncan, not kind of, oh, just kidding, uh, but, hey, Duncan, it's okay. You're saved, actually. And so it is through that process of going through the fire which will bring us, as it were, to salvation. And when Jesus talks about how at the day of judgment before him, people from all nations will be gathered, and he will sh set the, uh, the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. If you imagine Jesus standing there with you in front of him, or say a bunch of people in front of him, and he puts some people on his right hand, and right there the sheep, and then some people on his left hand, from their point of view, by a, a trick of the tail, we could say, they of course are seeing it from the other point of view. They come and stand before Jesus, and they put themselves, let's say, on, the, on his left hand. I should be condemned. I will stand on the left. That is his right hand. And those who are self-righteous and think, oh, well, here's the day of judgment. Yep, sure, I should be in the kingdom. I didn't do anything wrong. Will stand, as it were, put themselves at his right hand. But that is his left hand from his perspective. And so the day of judgment will perhaps be the greatest uh, paradox of all, that those who are convinced of their own self-righteousness that I should be saved, I did nothing wrong, they are the ones who will be condemned by that attitude. And those who say, look, I should be on the left-hand side here. My burden of sin is such. And they will be forgiven. It's this great paradox that by recognizing that we are to be condemned, we shall be saved. Now, you know, this is only part of a picture. Another part of the picture, when you, you read Romans 1 to 8, you come to the end of it shaking your head, thinking, I can scarcely believe this, that I am to believe that I am actually declared right, right now. And yes, we are to believe that. <clears throat> but we only get there, as Paul starts off in Romans 1 and 2 and 3, uh, convicting the whole lot of us as serious sinners. And it's only on that basis that you can come to glory in Romans 8, that I, as the condemned sinner... I'm standing there in the box declared right, and there's no one in the witness box to witness against me. Who shall condemn us? It is Christ that died and rose again for our justification. So, yeah, these are all just uh, different pictures into the same ultimate reality. But um, let's think a little bit more, though, about this building. <clears throat> He's talking about care for others. And he says to the Corinthians, <clears throat> we are laborers together with God, it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but you are God's building. And he says that he, in his missionary work, was a, a, a master builder, and yet he, he says that we are workers together with God. That in all that building, we are working with him. And so, what it seems to me is that <clears throat> Jesus really has, uh, Jesus is the, the stone, the foundation stone, and we lay that foundation stone, and we therefore, after that, start to build in other people's lives. Now, the assumption is, in many religions, that the work of pastorally upbuilding other people is the work of a group of specialists, the pastoral team the priesthood, whatever term you want to use, 
But the whole point is, I think, that we are all priests. We are a priesthood, a royal priesthood, and a holy, a holy nation, First of Peter 2.5. So then, we all have impact upon others. And according to what he's writing here, the Day of Judgment will really judge the quality of our building with others. What we have done for others. It's so obvious and it's so simple, but that's what it's all about. And yet we live in a, a society, thanks to the internet, where people can retreat within themselves and really be very selfish and believe in isolation and uh, believe all these wonderful truths that you can learn from academic study and be baptized and think, right, so I'm okay. But the whole uh, point of our lives is that we are builders. We are career builders. Not odd jobbers now and again or DIY guys who get involved in it now and again when they need to. But this is our career and we are working with God, every single one of us. And the Day of Judgment will judge what we built for other people. Because the work that he's um, <clears throat> talking about is the work of building up others. And that's really confirmed when he says, verse 13, that the fire will try every man's work. He says in chapter 9, verse 1, You, uh, Corinth, you are my work in the Lord. And he, that's why he's so bothered about them with all their unspirituality. It's why he's writing letters to them. You know, he could have thought, look, I laid the foundation, I preached the gospel to you. If you've wandered away from it and you're living an immoral, divided way of life, that is your problem. I taught you another way. Look, it's, it's your problem. But why does he come back to them? Why does he talk about visiting them and write these letters to them, etc.? Why does he bother? Because he knows that they are his work. Now, what is your work? This is the whole point of association in ecclesias, in, in churches, of connection with others, that we are there to build them up. And the whole idea of, well, I don't go to church because I get nothing out of it, sure, I can understand people saying that, but we don't go to church for what we might get out of it. We go there as part of our mission to build up others. And so, let's just imagine that you've invested a huge amount of effort in somebody. You know, going out for endless cups of coffee with uh, some, some friend of yours who's going through a divorce or whatever. And you read the Bible with them and you encourage them to keep praying and you pray for them and you worry for them and you, you look up things on the internet to try to help them and stuff like that. And you do that for decades. And that person comes into the kingdom. You would have built gold and silver and precious stones whereas if you just don't care and occasionally you might just drop an SMS message to somebody and you know just don't care about them okay they may fail of God's kingdom and it's no good saying yeah well that's their problem it was your problem because you could have built them up and so you would have built wood hay and stubble and that day of judgment will declare it even though you may be saved your efforts for others will be burnt up. And he says something I find very profound in verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned, and he said in 9 verse 1, or he says in 9 verse 1, that you Corinthians are my work in the Lord. If any man's work shall be burned, if the people you've worked for get burnt up, as it were, in, in the metaphor of condemnation at the last day, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet 
through fire. You shall suffer loss. The loss of anybody is a loss to you, to me. You know, it's that John Donne quote that, uh, you know, the death of any man diminishes me. Uh, and that is how it is. We will enter the kingdom having suffered loss. That those people are a, a something personal that we have lost. And yet we may think, no, that's just another guy in the church. That's just another, well, person that I was chatting to on the internet uh, and had a sort of internet relationship with them. And well, yeah, they turned away. Um, <clears throat> but you will suffer loss in the loss of that person. And it works the other way. Verse 14, if any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, that is on the foundation of the basic gospel and people's acceptance of it, he shall receive a reward. Now, I know in one sense it's a penny a day for all of us, salvation. And yet, there is also the idea that uh, some people get ten cities, five cities, two cities, the rest of it. So salvation is one thing, but the, the degree of reward is another. And so if your work for another person abides the fire of judgment, and they are in the kingdom of God to some degree, thanks to your efforts, you get a reward. And what is that reward? That reward is your relationship with that person. Forever and ever and ever. That's your reward. Because eternity, in one sense, is about relationships. You know, we're not just going to be locked up in a room forever on your own. We're going to spend eternity as part of God's name, as part of God's purpose, as Him in that sense. And He is His people. And so the reward that He's talking about there, I don't think you, you spend eternity walking around with a, with a medal on that, you know, I saved uh, Johnny Smith or I... Uh, I played a big part in Debbie getting into the kingdom. It's not like you're walking around with a medal. Your reward is that you will live eternally in relationship with that person who in this very brief life you saved. I know a brother who I am sure that none of you know. He's a lovely man. And he married, let's say, a high-maintenance woman. She is high, high maintenance. And he faded out of active ecclesial life and spends, for years, decades now, he's spent his life looking after that, that one woman. And, you know, when she comes into the kingdom, and I believe she will be there, that will be thanks to him. And that will be his reward. And so... Yeah, let's not despise the day of small things. The the effort that you make, go to visit somebody, go for coffee with somebody, emails, phone calls, just a little bit of grace that you show to them, get someone a present for their birthday when they never get birthday presents from hardly anybody, remember something that's going on in their lives. All these little things, this is what salvation in the end... Uh, in the bigger algorithm of, of their salvation, all those things play a part in that. I don't mean just hanging out socially, of course, for the sake of it. I mean really consciously doing all those things to try to help another person. 
That's what life is about. That is our calling. Not to simply hold on to a set of theology and argue about it with the JWs and Mormons and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and the rest of them. And I mean, it is that, uh, to some degree. Um, but the essence of it is to work in God's house, in God's family. Builders together with him. So verse 13, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. Now, the day of judgment will, as he, Paul also says, will make manifest the secrets of the heart. You've got that in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 5, that when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, or reveal the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels or the uh, motives of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. My friend who's spent his life trying to save his wife, he will have praise of God and of all of us. And uh, the, the same uh, idea is here in verse 13 of our chapter 3, that the day of judgment will declare human work. It will declare, it will reveal what is hidden, the hidden motives. Why he went out for a coffee with her. Why she wrote him those emails, etc. And yet the same word is used when Jesus was a little baby and he was being cuddled um, <clears throat> by Simeon. And it's in Luke 2, 34 and 35. And Simeon blesses Joseph and Mary and says to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yes, a sword shall pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Same words. Uh, as in chapter 4, verse 5, and here in chapter 3, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians. He's alluding clearly to the spear thrust into the side of Jesus. And he's saying that that would result in the thoughts of many hearts being revealed. And so there is something in the crucifixion that elicits self-understanding and self-examination. This is why uh, the, the breaking of bread, which focuses us upon the, uh, the death of Jesus, is quite naturally a time for self-examination. The two things go, go naturally together. That's why when people saw the actual crucifixion of Jesus, they beat their breasts. And the only other time, that's in Luke's record of the crucifixion, uh, the only other time that that phrase occurs is also in Luke's Gospel, where we read of the, the sinner who beats upon his breast and says, God have mercy to me, a sinner. The connection being that viewing the crucifixion, trying to make it all come real yet once again in our, in our minds and imaginations that convicts us of sin it reveals the human heart to itself it's a foretaste of the day of judgment and that in one sense is why the breaking of bread is also a foretaste of that day of judgment it's why it's an extremely personal thing this is why also when John in Revelation sees a vision of the Day of Judgment, he sees sitting on the throne a lamb as it had been slain. And visually I imagine that what he saw was Judgment Day with a silhouette 
of a slain lamb behind the throne it's as if Jesus was the judge as he hung there on on the cross and that's why in the in the lead up to the uh, to the judge to the crucifixion Jesus said now is the judgment of this world what all this means for us at this moment in time is that as we reconstruct in our own minds him there this should elicit self-examination and it's a foretaste of that final day when we shall stand before him and everything is revealed our own hearts chapter 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 uh, our own hearts hidden motives etc made manifest to all people and also our work because you see the parallel between our work being manifest or revealed and our thoughts being revealed the motives we had for going to meetings for hanging out with other believers all these things would be revealed if we went to that meeting because we thought well probably Inessa will be there and uh, I could uh, maybe give her the word of encouragement that will all be revealed if we turned up there just uh, like a robot because we were on autopilot that Wednesday night or whatever it was that also will be revealed we turned up there because we uh, we, we, uh, we fancied our chances with, uh, with Danny or with, uh, with uh, Alison or whoever it might have been that also will be there so my point is that we have a job to do and it's a serious job but it's a job that we do not do alone we are workers together with God